Good morning. Have a seat. It's good to see you. Acts chapter 8, if you brought a Bible with you, page number's on the screen if you picked up one of the house Bibles uh, at the door. How are you? It's June. Yeah. Not that excited about June. So a few months ago, I started, uh, I started reading personally uh, the book of Acts, which is this New Testament book, and it's written by Luke, who also wrote, let's try it again, it's written by Luke, who also wrote, awesome, if you want the Bible trivia night for the pizza joint, Acts, the book of Acts is actually part two of Luke. See, Luke is the gospel, it's the story of Jesus. And then Acts is the story of the church in its first maybe 15 years. So you've got uh, Jesus told in the story in the book of Luke, and then you have death, burial, resurrection, and then what he does between the two letters is he kind of does this sort of crossover exchange. And then in the book of Acts, it starts this journey of the first church, the first generation Christians. It's amazing. And so I just started reading it uh, myself about two or three months ago, just on my own. Uh, I haven't read it in years. And you think I would. I mean, a pastor, church, etc. But I just haven't read it in years. I was trying to think of why. And it, I think it's because it was the first book of the Bible that I took at seminary. And so I was 18. And my biblical experience up to that point was like youth group on Wednesday nights. So I, all I knew was how to... Uh, I knew all the hand motions to the songs and how to do silly string at youth group and go to camp. So I sat on this first uh, class, this first Bible class in college. It was the book of Acts. The textbook was this big. It was heavy. Uh, I was completely lost. There were maps and people's names and dates and countries and cities and ugh. Uh, at the end of the semester, though, there was a question on the exam. It, just two check boxes. Did you read the textbook? Which, again, was... I always found it weird that the books about the books of the Bible were bigger than the Bible. But, uh, I mean, I know why now, but at the time I was like, really? Because it's four pages in here, but like it's this. There was a thing at the end of the exam that said, did you read the textbook, yes or no? No, like, explanation. So, like, I'm thinking this, everything rides on this, right? I didn't read it. <laughs> you know? I mean, I looked at it, I read the cover, and was like, I'm not getting into that. And, um, I mean, how hard is it, right? But I remember, like, a lot of angst at the exam, just thinking, what do I write down? And I looked at my friend who was, like, my roommate, and he looked at me, and he was like, I'm going to ask for forgiveness later. (laughs) (laughs) The future pastors of uh, our world, right? Uh, I checked no because I was severely afraid of God. (laughs) And so, um, so, and I passed. But anyway, um, so I started reading it again, and the reason that I started reading it was I wanted to, because this is, the, this is the heart of the book of Acts, I wanted to like go back and retrace the steps and be reminded of what God was doing through the church and her people. That's all I wanted to do. And so a month or so into that, I came into a staff meeting, which I know sounds very powerful, but there's three of us. And I said, I'm really feeling like God is leading us to talk about some church stuff. And this is all coming from me just reading from the book of Acts. And uh, so I would like to, for the next four weeks, 
for the month of June is just talk about some church stuff. And everything that I'm going to do comes from the book of Acts. Everything that I'm going to do this month comes from that. And um, so you can call it a mission series. You can call it a vision series. You can call it a this is what we're about series. You can call it a behind the scenes of CCB series. Whatever you want to call it that makes most sense to you is fine. I don't really have a title for it other than I want, to, I want us to retrace our steps as a church community uh, and go all the way back to the very reasons that, that we're here. That, that's all I wanted to do. Uh, and our story today comes from Acts uh, chapter 8, which is just this fantastic story. It takes place in a chariot, by the way. This is my chariot. Do you like my chariot? Uh, props to All About Props and Tucker for this. Um, they don't rent real rickshaws on the bicycle. You know what I'm talking about, the bicycle rickshaws? We called everybody, and they're like, forget it, because you'll kill somebody on that. We don't want, we're not going to rent it to you. So we found this one. Um, thank you. Now, chapter 8 is really a critical chapter in the book of Acts, and here's why. All the way back in chapter 1, uh, Luke records the final conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. We often think that it is something else, but it's this right here. And he's sitting down with his disciples again. This is post death, burial, resurrection. He's been around for a few weeks. Uh, they're still sort of enamored with this. They're tripped out by this. And they're with Jesus. And this is what he says. And they're in Jerusalem, which is the main city for that area. So they're in the city. Uh, they're hanging out together. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says this. This is a quote from uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, you will be my witnesses, which has two meanings. It means you'll be my voice, my billboard, my example, my hands, my feet. When people see you, it's like they'll see me. You'll be my witnesses. It also has a second-tier meaning of martyrdom. You're going to die, which almost every apostle was martyred. And so it's an eerie thing that Jesus is saying. He says, you will be my witnesses, and primarily it's you'll be the voice, the example, the billboard, etc. for me. He says, you'll be my witnesses in and check out the flow, the trajectory. In Jerusalem, he says, the city where they are. And then he says, in Judea and Samaria. I told last service I kept saying Judaria. <laughs> sort of like Smining's, burning, Vining's and Smyrna. Uh, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria. Judea and Samaria are the suburbs of Jerusalem. And then he says, into the very ends of the earth, which this tripped him out because the ends of the earth was unknown. What is the ends of the earth? And you don't travel much back then, right? If you did, you were running from somebody. Uh, so the ends of the earth was this, who, who, who are you talking about? Where is this going to be? So he tells them, the flow of your uh, witness, the flow of your life, the flow of this story of Jesus will happen right where you are in the city, and then it will move outward all the way to the ends of the earth. But it was all just wording. They had no idea what Jesus meant. They're just like, we're just still amazed that you're standing here. But he's telling them this, and they're like, whatever. This is great. And so the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, roughly 10, 10 years, uh, the church is primarily focused in the city of Jerusalem, and it's flourishing. It's like this honeymoon of like, wow, all these different things are happening, and it's fantastic. Then at the very end of chapter 7, this man named Stephen, and Stephen is one of the uh, first church leaders, like this big church leader in Jerusalem. Stephen is murdered for his faith. So 10, 12 years, kind of peaceful, things are happening. It's just like this expansion. It's a great time uh, to be in the church. 
And then they take this man, Stephen, and most of chapter 7 is Stephen on trial for his faith. It's, it's unbelievable to read his speech, and you could do that if you get bored today, just back up, but to read his speech to the, to the officials about his relationship with Jesus and so on, and they just, he's just like, I don't really care what you do to me, which was kind of an open door, and so they pulled him out into the street, and they just murdered him. So you've got this run of some great activity in church life, and then the first martyr, Stephen, is dead. And then, it's very interesting in verse 1 of chapter 8. Check it out. It says, and Saul was there, giving approval to his death. Now, Saul will change his name to what? Do you know? Paul. This is unbelievable. This is Saul sort of going, okay, great, kill him, checks him, he's dead. So Saul's giving approval to his death. Saul will become Paul, who will plant all these churches outside of Jerusalem uh, and will write most of the New Testament. So, oh, how God changes the story. On that day, it says, second part of verse 1, on that day a great persecution broke out against the church. So there's this hint that there was some bent-up angst in the city. They were just waiting for the catalyst to push in on this new Jesus movement, right? So on the day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and this is unbelievable. All except the apostles were scattered throughout where? Judea and Samaria, or Judaria. Isn't this what Jesus said? <laughs> uh, so you have this picture of Stephen dies. That raises up some underground tension. The church feels this persecution. There's a lot of people afraid. And you just have this picture of everybody leaving, just except the apostles sort of looking around going, <clears throat> now what? But they all go to Judea and Samaria, which is fine. Look at verse 4. Those who have been scattered preach the word wherever they went. So you have this, here we go. Luke's telling us that it, it was no matter. It kind of fulfilled what Jesus was saying. You're going to be my witnesses out there as well. So they go out there, they reestablish their lives, and they begin to tell the story of Jesus, plant churches, etc. Philip, say the word Philip. This is our guy today, all right? So get used to him. Philip went down to the city in Samaria, so he's out there and proclaimed Christ there. So he's doing the same thing. Luke brings him up for a very important reason, all the way back down to 20, verse 26. Now our story begins. And if you will, just walk with me through the text. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, which is, there's two possible roads from Jerusalem to Gaza that were known as the desert road. Luke doesn't tell us which one, but basically Philip knew what it was. Go south to the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So that's what he did. So God leads Philip to do this. So he starts out, and on his way, he met this guy from Ethiopia. Luke says, Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. That seems like a throwaway statement, but this is massive. Let me just paint this for you. Uh, first of all, he's from Ethiopia. Interesting about Ethiopia. At the time, Greco-Roman culture at the time, Ethiopia to them was known as the furthest outpost of human settlement. To them, Ethiopia was the very ends of the earth. That was it. That's as far as you could go. Secondly, in Ethiopia, there was a very rich history of Jewish faith. North Africa was full of Jewish people. And so Ethiopia has this real rich Jewish heritage. Uh, we see that because you'll see it in a second. So that's number two. Luke also says that he's a eunuch. 
Thanks for exposing that, Luke. Uh, this means that this man, it's two things. He can't produce a family. We'll leave it at that. Uh, explain that to your kids later. The other thing is he mentions that he's, a, he's an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of Ethiopians. Eunuchs were also palace employees for Ethiopia. And there were so many people working in the palace, and some were actually physically eunuchs, and some weren't, that they just used the term to describe anybody who worked in the palace. But Luke tips us off that this guy was both. He's working for this lady named Candace, which is actually not her name. Candace was like a Caesar title. Anyone who was the queen mother of Ethiopia was called Candace. And she was typically in charge of, like, they called the secular duties of the king. So this guy, in the chariot, heading back to Jerusalem, is top tier in the government of Ethiopia, handling the money for the queen mother. And God says, might be a good idea to go talk to him. Right? It's amazing. So it says, this man had gone to Jerusalem to what? Worship. So he's Jewish, or at least he's pursuing it. And on his way home, he's sitting in his chariot, thus the rickshaw, which is probably what it looked like. The word for chariot is actually the word harma. Say the word harma. It means wagon, but that just doesn't sound very biblical, right? Chariot, but it's really just a wagon. 15 miles a day, maybe, top speed. And it says that he's reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Now, don't just skip over that. Who has that in these days? A a well-to-do synagogue might have a copy of it. But this guy has got his own personal, I mean, this is like the Kindle. He's got his own Kindle in the chariot, just, Isaiah, hand me the scroll of Isaiah. Who? No one has that. So this guy is powerful, or has his hands in some powerful places. And he's reading the prophet Isaiah, which if you've ever just sort of strolled through the prophet of Isaiah over coffee, it's very confusing. And so he's reading through the prophet. And the Spirit told Philip, again, this is God nudging him, go to that chariot and stay near it. So Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. It was very common to read out loud. So Philip asks him, do you understand what you are reading? Right? It's a two-tiered question. One part of it is, do you understand the magnitude of what you're reading? Because you'll see in a moment he's reading something very, very uh, powerful. It's like we just sort of rattle off Bible verses. Yeah, 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 yeah. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son and whoever believes in him and blah, 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 blah. And sometimes it takes people to say, back up. Do you feel the weight of what you just said? What do you mean? There's magnitude in that. So part of it is that. But most of it is this. Do you comprehend what you're reading? Because I'm gathering that you don't. Verse 31. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. Now, the Greek here is actually, I don't get it, right? (laughs) You ever read the Bible and that's your, I don't get it. So he invited Philip to come up in the chariot with him, and the eunuch was reading this passage. Now you'll understand why he says, I have no idea. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and the lamb before the shearer is silent. And so he did not open his mouth. And in his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Of course he doesn't know what that means. 
I mean, it sounds good, but what is he talking about? Now, we know the story. We know that this is a prophecy about Jesus and how he'll die on the cross and he'll suffer for the sins and the brokenness of the world, etc. We understand that. This guy does not. And here's why. Two reasons. One, there was no known understanding before Jesus of the Messiah suffering. They never thought that. That's why Jesus was so confusing. Messiahs don't wash people's feet. Messiahs don't touch leopards, lepers, or leopards. Messiahs don't uh, hang out with the oppressed and the poor. Messiahs don't treat women as equals. Messiahs don't do. Th- Messiahs reign and power. This was their understanding of Messiah. No one, there's no trace of historical evidence that anyone before Jesus ever imagined that the Messiah would suffer. Even the prophets, as they spoke these things, and First Peter says this in his letter, they didn't even know what they were talking about. It never made sense to them. And so Philip's question, do you have any idea what you're reading, is a very simple, is a very simple answer. There's no way. He never knew that. And so we know that this is about Jesus suffering on the cross and so on. And knowing that, you can read back through it and see it. Oh, yeah, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. They dragged him into trial. There was no getting away from it. As a lamb before the shear is silent, he did not open his mouth. When Pilate gave him a chance to get out of it, Jesus just stood there. In his humiliation, of course, you die on a cross without clothes on and you're bleeding to death. It's total humiliation. He was deprived of justice, killed for no reason. Who can speak of his descendants? He has no children, for his life was taken from We understand this, but he didn't. This, our friend in the chariot was lost. That's what it means to be lost. He doesn't know the way through the text. He doesn't know what his next move is with God. He's just sort of spinning. Verse 34, the eunuch asked Philip, are you okay so far? I mean, are you enjoying this? Okay, just hang on. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about himself? See, is it himself or is it someone else? And then Philip began, and this is one of those moments where I'm like, please feel the weight Then Philip began with that very passage, this right here. He did not avoid the question. He went straight into this very thing that he was reading, the very passage of Scripture. And from that, he told him, it says, the good news of Jesus. So Philip didn't do what a lot of us do. Someone asks us a real tough biblical question, and we go, "Um, I don't know, but let me tell you about my small group. It's really good. Tell you about my church. Philip says, fair enough. I get it. Let's start right there. And he begins to tell this story of Jesus, right? And then it says, as they traveled along, and Luke does this every time. As they traveled along, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? It takes us back to the story that Luke also told us of Zacchaeus. Jesus goes into Zacchaeus' house. Next verse, Zacchaeus stands up and says, I give half of what I own to the poor. Well, what happened in the house? No one knows. This is classic Luke. He doesn't tell us. And who knows how many miles they rode. Again, 10, 15 miles a day on one of these babies. And Philip just began to unfold the gospel and the whole scriptures, taking him to the very story of Jesus, right? How he did that, I have no idea. I would love to know, but Luke doesn't tell us. But all he tells us is the result of the story, and that's that this, our friend in the chariot says, oh, well, let's just stop here, and I'll be baptized. And he gave the orders to stop the chariot. Stop the chariot, he says. 
Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, so Philip gets led away. And the eunuch did not see him again, and went on his way rejoicing all the way back down to Ethiopia, all the way to the ends of the earth. And there the story of Jesus began to unfold. Irenaeus, the historian, says this was the moment that the gospel made it into Ethiopia. And Luke records that. Now, simplest understanding of this story. I mean, there's a lot in here, and I've given you some, but there's a, you could go real deep into this. But let me just give you the, the simplest summary of the story. It goes like this. This guy has questions about God, about his scriptures, about what they mean, about life, about uh, what God is up to. That's what he has questions about. He's reading the, the scroll. He invites Philip into the chariot and says, tell me, tell me what this is about. So he has spiritual questions, just like all of us do. And so uh, that's part A. He has questions about God and about what the whole story is. And Philip basically just leads him here. Beginning with that very passage, and we'll just assume this is a good 30 miles. And Philip leads him here to the cross. Right? Story leads here. All of Scripture points to this. All of it. Philip knew that. This guy didn't know that. And so Philip began with that very passage and took him to the cross. Does that make sense? He had questions about God. Philip took him here. Are we clear? All right. Part two. Uh, about, I don't know, six weeks ago, maybe less, I came in here on a Sunday night, which is always very spooky. Uh, <laughs> there's rocks on the roof and they make noises. But I came in here on a Sunday night, maybe nine o'clock, it was late, and I cleared out all the chairs by myself. Stacked them up, put them in the back. I put four over here and four over here. And behind that curtain over there, no secrets here. That's a chalkboard, just let you know. It's very awesome how we did that. Uh, so I pulled the blanket off, and I pulled the chalkboard right here. And I wrote the names of our staff on the chalkboard right across the top. Jamie, Jessica, me, Derek. Uh, I went last because the first shall be last. And so I put the uh, chalkboard here, wrote the names on the chalkboard, and then because I had just purchased this a couple days before, I set up a baseball diamond. I didn't buy a baseball diamond, but I bought the bases. And it's a wiffle ball set, not a real set, right? So I put the home plate here and the first base there and the second base. You get, you get, you've been to a baseball game, right? Uh, oh, and it even had a pitcher's, what do you call that? It didn't have a mound. It had the thing on the mound. Okay, whatever. Since we're all clear about what that is, uh, so I put that there, right about there, and uh, had a blue wiffle ball bat and a wiffle ball. Any wiffle ball fans? College? In the hallways? Nobody? What, what are y'all doing? Okay. Uh, <laughs> so had that set up, everything. Then I went home. Oh, the chairs over here were the dugouts, so just so you're wondering what that may have been. It was for staff meeting, which is on Mondays at 10, Okay. My son asked if the wiffle ball set was for him, and I said, 
starting Tuesday, it's for you. But for Monday, it's for us. Uh, he didn't get why we were going to play baseball in staff meeting, but I'll explain to you later. Or now, actually. So staff meeting is at 10, so there was some time for staff to come in and go, whoa, the chairs are moved. Whoa, there's baseball stuff and a bat and a chalkboard. I guess it's a scoreboard, and they went in back there where offices are. And I didn't say anything about it, you know. And uh, 15 minutes till staff meeting, I emailed them both. I guess I could have just talked to them. They're right behind me. But I emailed them both, and I said, uh, at 10 o'clock, come in here with uh, something to write with, a journal, and your Bible, okay? And that was it. So at 10 o'clock, we all sort of came in here. And there was no intro. I just said, okay, great. First base is a point. Second base is two points. If you get to third, that's three. Home plate, that's four. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, if you hit the wall, that's an automatic four, and you'd be surprised it didn't happen all that much. But if you hit the back wall, that's a home run. And I had one of the back doors open. I said, if you get it out the back door, that is a, that's like a 10-point shot. No one got that, by the way. Um, so I said, got it, clear. Jamie, you're up to bat first, and then we just started to play. Uh, would you like to know who won? Jessica, the girl, won. So it's good. Yeah. I was fine with that until she put it on her Facebook. <laughs> and um, so I responded and said, as the staff leader, I allowed you to win. So, uh, so we played baseball for like 15, 20 minutes. And uh, then we sat down in a circle. And I just asked a very, very simple question. How do you win a baseball game? How do you do that? It's easy. Score the most runs. Great. How do you do that? Uh... You hit the ball and you get to first, then the second, then the third, then the fourth. So there's an advancement, some proper direction and trajectory and motion. Okay, good. That's it. That's, a, that's essentially it. You hit the ball, you get on base, and you advance the runners. That's how you know. That's how you do it. Not totally connected because it's not the same kind of thing, but then I just said, okay, next question. How do you know that your church is winning? Question mark. It was quiet, just like this, and then somebody said, essentially, that we're faithful to what God has called us to do and to be. Correct. But how do you know you're doing that? How do you know you're winning at that? And then the answers went off the chart. There isn't, there isn't like a clear, sometimes there's just not a clear answer. Well, how do you know your church is being faithful to what it's been called to do and to be? Oh. If I pass out three-by-five cards and just said, write down your answer, I imagine that it would look like this. There would be as many answers as there would be people. Some might say it's an issue of justice, like the church would be involved in acts of justice with the poor and the oppressed and so on. Some might say mercy, like how we deal with the poor in our city, right? Or the people in our church that are struggling. Mercy might be something on a card. Some of you might say performance, like, was the band good today? Right? Maybe you leave and go, man, second song, awesome. That might be it for you. Might be a performance thing, right? Some of you might say, it's about growth, about education, like spiritual growth, like, am I growing? Number, one of the number one reasons, I guess there's not one of the number one, but one of the top reasons people leave a church is because they say, I don't feel like I'm growing. So education might make a card, or community, fellowship, etc., like whatever the systems are in a church that put people together for relationships, like how are those doing? Like that's a marker for some people. Like I can meet some people and get to know them and do life together. Community might 
land on a card, and I'm sure that it would. Some of you uh, see things in terms of charts and graphs, and so it's about growth, like that we would be growing in number, right? This is the, this is the first or second question I always get asked. Where's your church? A, how many do you run, right? I just, you know, I, I never really know the answer. I just say, well, there's people here. Um, so some of that might be it for you, that you see a, the, the chart goes up and to the right. Some of it might be, and this is kind of a deep cut, maybe not many people, but some might say that we're involved in planting other churches in the city. Uh, yeah, that might, that might hit it, that we're expanding that way. And then there might be one that says it's about youth and children. It might say that my kids are happy here, that they like their teacher, they like what they're learning, they have fun, it's a fun environment, the kids are meeting people, and blah, 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 blah. And so that all those things might come in and then some. And the thing about all, and I asked my, oh, back to the baseball thing with my son, why are you playing baseball in staff meeting, he said. And I said, because I want us to talk as a staff about how do we know if our church is winning at what we've been called to do and to be. And he's eight, so he went, oh, what? <laughs> and so, so I tried to re-explain it to him. And so I said, Alden, what do you think? That, give me the two things that you would think would indicate, I don't think I use the word indicate, but that would you know, be a sign that we're winning. And he said, oh, um, that a lot of people came and that no one got fired. So <laughs> I don't know what that means, but <laughs> it's a, it's a, I like it. I like it. Um, so all of these things, justice, mercy, performance, education, community, numerical growth, church planting, youth ministries, etc., all of that's good. And the thing about all of those things that might be written on a card, it's all probably very true. They're all within what God would like for his church in a local setting. All of those things matter. All of those things actually really matter. But they all start with God. They all begin there. You know this. Many of you know this. Some of you don't. Jesus said the single most important thing for us, the greatest commandment he called it, is that we love God. And he spelled it out, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And strength are all those things I've just mentioned, the things that we end up doing, right? That we end up doing justice and mercy and worship in this setting and community and working with students and children and et cetera. Those are all things, those, that's the strength of our faith. But faith begins with the heart and the soul and the mind, this engagement internally with the living God. It all begins there. Love of God moves from the inside out, not the outside in. Maybe you grew up in a setting where God was performance, then acceptance, but it's not that way in the scriptures. It's heart, soul, mind, strength, not strength backwards. Not if I do this, if I'm in church every week, etc., then he'll, then it'll take. But it's no, it begins here and then it moves, it moves outward. It shows up in our lives over time. And so Jesus said, that's the most important thing. And so back to the question, like, well, how do you know if a church is winning? And one of the things that our, our church is simply that our, our number one passion is to see God renew the hearts of people. That's it. So how do you know that's happening? I think, in, not in every situation, but especially from our story today, it's that chariots are getting led to the cross. 
It's incredible. I didn't do anything last service. <laughs> Spectacular. I'm just doing the same thing. And like uh, four people come up to uh, Jamie afterwards and say, hey, can we, can we be baptized next Sunday? Uh, yeah. Really? A rented rickshaw. <laughs> but that's the heartbeat of what God wants for us is simply that we're leading people. Now, what people do here at the foot of the cross, that's up to them. We don't, we don't make people do whatever. But this, that's the story. That's the mission. Back in March, I got an email from uh, our friends at Buckhead Church around the corner. A dear friend of ours directs that campus. His name is Jeff. And Jeff emailed me this uh, email <laughs> and said, I want to feature your church in our blog, which is like their newsletter. I said, okay. Uh, since, we get, <laughs> since we get your bagels. We got their bagels one day. We always get their mail and uh, their stuff because people think we're them and the post, people th- post office people think we're them. Uh, we're starting to check their mail. They're like, are those stage lights? We could use some more stage lights. Uh, <laughs> are those all the new Macs they ordered? Sweet, bring them in, you know. But we got their bagels one day, like just hundreds of bagels, you know, like, hmm. Get a phone call on Monday. Did you guys get some bagels? What kind of bagels? Describe the bagel. <laughs> so anyway, he emails me and he says, uh, I want to feature your church in our blog. And uh, so I have three questions for you. It starts with, how can we pray for your team? Wow. I mean, just amazing. Uh, and then he said, what are your plans for Easter? And I, I don't know if he meant like, like he wanted to hang out or like uh, what he wanted. I don't know. I mean, we're doing Easter. If that's what you, I mean, my answer was like, we're doing it. <laughs> It's happening. So I didn't, it was hard to tell. It was like, I don't know, it was sort of ambiguous. Like maybe he was waiting for me at the golf course and I never showed up. Um, what are your plans for Easter? And then this is the question I've always loved to hate because it's such a struggle. So what is the mission of Christian Church Buckhead? It's like, oh, I don't want to do this. I mean, right before I came here, they sent us to boot camp, this like week-long sort of deal. And one of the activities was get with your team, and I want you to write a mission statement for your church. And I was like, oh, I just hate doing this. I just hate this. And I'll tell you why in a minute. It's not because it's not right. It's just, it's so much frustration. So this is my answer to him. I'm just going to read you uh, the email back to him. I said, if you would have asked me this question three years ago, I would have rattled off something about trying to keep the doors open. So if you were with us three years ago, that will make sense. If you were with us three years ago and that doesn't make sense, you're blessed. I said, in fact, I would have used the word survival. Those were difficult days for us. And even though our mission was clear on paper somewhere, it had gotten lost in a pile of the immediate concerns of our day-to-day life as a church here in the city. It was a very difficult time. I said, I won't get into all the details, but in those days, the beat around the shop, which is the office here, was tenuous. I heard Tim Keller speak, who's a pastor in uh, Manhattan. And that's a tough gig. And he said, there was a stretch of, you know, the first few years of ministry there where he just felt like it could all go away. It could all just blow away. I know that feeling. And I said, in all aspects, it was day to day. I said, I remember my wife and I having some discussion about this and how I could probably work other gigs and make ends meet so I could still be here and so on. 
And I said James 1 was big for us. And James 1 is book of James chapter 1 where he says, uh, Consider it joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work in you so that you may be complete and mature, not lacking anything, etc., etc. Just, wow. I read that every day. And then I said, but underneath all those trials was a mission, a reminder of why we were here, and it was then and still is today to simply lead people into the saving and growing relationship with Jesus. And then spelled out for us to see God renew hearts, the hearts of people as our passion. And to be his hands and feet in the city, that's our vocation. And to partner with his work around the world is simply our privilege. But it all starts with seeing God renew the hearts of people. That's our passion. That's all we want to do. I wish this was my quote, but it's not. Check this out. It says, it's not so much that the church has a mission, but it's that God's mission has a church. See, this is why I don't like circling up and writing mission statements. Because we don't have to. The mission is right here. I didn't write this into the story. This is God's mission. Through the resurrected Jesus Christ, announcing a new creation, a new life, a new day, God reaching down, pursuing us, saying, look, there will come a day when this broken world is fixed, but for now, trust me, come back to me, start the new creation, start the new life, start the new way today, even in tandem with the way things are in the world. God is acting and moving now, and this story of God right here on the cross, that's the mission. That's always been the mission. Jesus said these, in, these words in John 5, chapter 17. He said, my father is always at his work, even to this very day. So it's not as though God is on a break. God has always been on a mission, and it's simply the church's job to get in on the mission. And it's not that the church even has a mission. It's that God has a mission, and his mission has us. Does that make sense? That's something to chew on there. Like, wow. I don't have to create what we are about. I just have to get in on what God is about. That's our passion. Is to get, I mean, let me just read it to you this way. We, CCB, our church, we just want to see God's mission unfold and happen through us. That's it. I mean, when these people came up to us after church last service, I'm like, well, there it is. That's the mission. We don't have to create mission. We have a God who is on a mission. To renew the hearts of people everywhere through the person and the grace and the message of the resurrected Jesus, that is our task, to simply lead chariots to the cross. That's it. I mean, I got nothing else to say because my notes are finished. But to see God renew the hearts of people, that's our passion. So when Philip said to this important person in a chariot, do you understand anything that you're reading? And he said, I, I have no idea. But check out my scroll. And Philip said, well, let me just explain it to you. It's that. And if you're in the chariot, if that's you, someone with spiritual questions, someone with 
a pursuit of God. It's why you're here, etc. You must know that everything we do leads to the cross. Everything. The whole scriptures lead to the cross. Everything we do leads to the cross. And you must know that everything we do and everything we're trying to be is because of the cross. Not for any other reason. It's because of the cross. And all those things that I listed earlier that the church is supposed to be about, I'm actually going to talk about a lot of those things this month. But it all begins with this heart renewed by God. That's where it begins. And so that's our, that's our number one mission. Amen? Amen. Uh, I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing one more song, and then uh, don't go anywhere because I want to come up and just dismiss us officially with uh, just a little bit of information. So let's all stand together, and I'll pray. God, thank you for this day, and thank you for... Uh, Thank you for your mission, which is to renew the world, to renew this earth, to renew the brokenness that is here, to renew us as people, and that all starts with an individual heart. And uh, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, here to just share that information. That religion is us reaching up to you, but you are really reaching down to us. I mean, this story in the scriptures is about you pursuing us. And the cross is the greatest display of your love and your grace, announcing a new day and a new creation and a new way, bursting forth in the midst of our world. And Father, we thank you so much for just that display of, again, that love and that grace. And we just stand in awe of that. And as we sing... Uh, these words to you and about you that you will remind us that this is the mission you're on and we just want to get in on it it's in your holy and precious name that I pray and everyone said amen let's sing together